war, politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. This episode is entitled, Israel Today, New Beginnings. Okay, well, we're moving now to a very important topic, Israel Today, New Beginnings. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Father, we need your help to understand this vital topic. This is one of the most important topics in the Bible, and we pray that you will help us to understand it as we go to the book of Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the places I like visiting is New York City. I ran some programs here in Brooklyn a few years ago, similar to this And what I love about New York is this lady in the harbour here, because, of course, people have come from the shores of many countries to the United States and to many of them past this statue because this is the great symbol of freedom. And many people came here for freedom and a new beginning in life, especially many refugees from many countries. Another place I like to visit is what we call Berlin and where the wall once ran through. You probably saw the wall when it came down. Some of you who were born by that time, 1989, 1990, I think it was, 1989, the wall came down and people experienced freedom and a new beginning. I remember the first time I went to Berlin, the wall was up. It was... uh, and, and to travel across the wall, you know, Alsatian dogs and, and security guards. And it was quite a, uh, almost a, a, a traumatic effort just across into East Berlin. You immediately sensed that they didn't have much freedom on the eastern side back in those days. But a new beginning. One of the great places for freedom in the new beginning is Israel. 1948, the state of Israel was born and people had freedom and a new beginning, especially people who had come out of Europe after the Holocaust and so on. In 1948, as soon as Israel was born, the next day the surrounding Arab nations attacked Israel, but amazingly this new state defeated them. In 1956, the Arab nations struck again, and again for the second time, the Israelis defeated the Arab nations. In 1967, it was on again in what we call the Six-Day War. And within six days, Israel had defeated the Arabs again. 1973, they had what is known as the Yom Kippur War because they attacked on the Day of Atonement that we talked about last week called Yom Kippur. Israel nearly went under that time, but they rallied and they gained uh, the upper hand and they won that war too. And many people looking at what has taken place in Israel, especially since 1948, believe that what is taking place is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That's the sense that many people have. In fact, this is why many Christians pray for the peace of Jerusalem around the world today, many Christians. This is why uh, the United States... uh, foreign policy in the Middle East is slanted to Israel and not the Palestinians. 
because in Israel, of course, there are many Jewish people and a strong lobby group. And then in Israel and in America, of course, you have many Protestants who believe that Israel are God's people and they should be supported. So this is why the United States of America backs Israel. In fact, I was watching a documentary on uh, national television a few years ago. And, you know, the former Premier of New South Wales, Bob Carr. Remember that Premier way back? Uh, He was being interviewed because he's a very good reader. He's a well-read man. And they asked him the question. So, Bob Carr, uh, Mr. Carr, why why does the United States support uh, Israel and not the Palestinians so much? Oh, he said, that's easy because of the very things I've just mentioned, because of the Israeli people, the Jewish people in Israel, in, in, in America, I should say, and, of course, the Protestants. He just came straight out with it. So what we want to discover now is Israel in the end times. What does the Bible have to say about Israel in the book of Revelation? Is it talked about? And if so, in what sense is Israel mentioned? So let's notice what the Bible says. As we do this tonight, we're going to sense that God is committed to freedom and a new beginning for each one of us. We're going to discover that for freedom, you and I must take a stand. We must make a stand. For freedom, Christ calls us to take a stand. This is what we're going to discover as we move into this topic. We begin in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, the seven seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll be back here tomorrow afternoon when we talk about 666 and the mark of the beast. So John sees these four horsemen and the seven seals. Under the sixth seal... He sees the climactic events of planet Earth. He sees the return of Jesus Christ. We've read it before, but let's read it again. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. There's an earthquake. Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Why? For the great day of his wrath has come. And then there's this haunting question. Who is able to stand? Good question. Now in the Bible, there were no chapters and verses. These were put in later on so we could find the place when we talk to each other. So these were put in later. Now, in actual fact, in this passage, we just continue to reading into the next chapter. It just flows straight on. And so we pick that up. It answers this question because it just flows straight on. Who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb when Jesus comes? That's the question. And then John sees the very next verse in chapter 7, four angels, they're pushing back the winds of strife from beating up this planet. Why? Because some people are not yet ready for Jesus to come. Notice what it says. I saw another angel. He ascended from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea saying, do not hurt the earth, the seal, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now we're going to be talking. Many people want to talk about the mark of the beast, but very few people talk about the seal of God. 
So make sure you're here tomorrow because we're going to talk about both tomorrow afternoon when we talk about the mark of the beast. So the Bible says, don't hurt anything because we've got to seal the people of God. Hold back. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. That's the only place the word Israel is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Right here. But of course, the, it's mentioned elsewhere, but it just doesn't call it Israel. So who can stand before the throne of God? That's the question. In other words, who can be saved when Jesus returns? Very important question, isn't it? Very important question. Answer, the 144,000 Israelites who have God's end time seal or mark in their foreheads. These are the ones saved when Jesus returns. So we better understand what all that's about, right? Now, we're not going to pick up all that tonight. Over the next couple of days and, and uh, next weekend, we'll answer that. But we just want to pick up on this bit tonight. So what do we mean? What's, what, what's this Israelite thing? Are you thinking right now there's no chance for me because I'm not a Jew? That should be on your mind. <laughs> so we need to answer this part. So let's pick that up now. Will only Israelites be saved when Jesus returns? Because that's what it seems to indicate. All right. Now, there are many symbols in the book of Revelation. We've seen some of them. Remember, we saw that these are all interpreted by this book. This is how we understand what these things are in Revelation from the Bible. Remember, 28 times in the book of Revelation, the most important beast that's ever mentioned is the lamb. And we understand what that means because we've been elsewhere in the Bible. That means just like a lamb died in the temple for the sins of the people, it pointed forward to the one day that Jesus would come to this planet and die for the sins of the world. The real sacrifice. We've seen that. Well, what about Israel? How do we understand this? So let's go elsewhere in the Bible. What is, who is an Israelite? Let's find out what the Bible says. Now, Paul ought to know. I mean, he's a Jew. So we ought to go to him and ask Paul. Let's see what Paul says. He's a follower of Jesus in the New Testament. He is not a Jew, an Israelite, who is one outwardly. Got the right nose, got the right blood, in other words. Nor is circumcision. Now, let's just explain for a minute. Circumcision was the sign for that a man was an Israelite. Circumcision in the foreskin. This was the sign from back in the time of Abraham. You're a Jew. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. No, no, no. We're not talking about that sort of thing, says Paul. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is, he says, that of the heart. In the spirit, by the spirit, not in the letter. Whose praise is not from men, from God. In other words, Paul says... Being an Israelite, a true Israelite, concerns the heart. It's about the inner person, not the right features, not being born into the right family. Are all Israelites the children of God? Because in Rima, that's what many Protestants teach. That's why the United States is supporting Israel, because these are the children of God. Is that the case? Let's have a look what the Bible says. Paul is talking. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's interesting. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. 
just because they're descended from Abraham does not make them Jews in the right sense. The children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. Just because they are Jewish people does not make them the children of God. That's a very interesting statement there from Paul when we think about how the United States is supporting Israel today. Now, can a non-Jew become an Israelite? Is that possible? Well, let's see what Paul says. He goes on and he says these words. Now to Abraham, that's the father of Israel, and his seed, his descendants are called Israel. Now to Abraham and his seed. Now watch what he says. Seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one seed. And to your seed, it says specifically, who is who? Christ. The seed of Abraham is Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is Israel. Now, then he goes on to say these words. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's because you're in Christ. And heirs according to the promise. So the only way to be a true Israelite or a Jew in the right sense of the word is to be in Jesus because he is, he is Israel. That's what Paul is telling us. We've got to be in him. Anyone in Christ is an Israelite. So there's good news for you. Remember that text, the 144,000 Israelites? You can qualify to be among the Israelites there, according to this verse. That's how you and I qualify, if we're in Jesus. That's why Paul can say these words. He goes on. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Mighty good news tonight. By the way, Paul was not blind. He knew what a Jew was. He knew what a Greek was. He could tell a male from a female. He's just saying there's no, no special people in God's sight. If you're in Jesus, everyone's special. In Christ, we are one. Okay, so true Israelites are true Christians in the Bible. Anybody who puts their trust in Jesus. So we can see, we can be in that first part that we're looking at in Revelation. So how do you become an Israelite? That's the question now. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time because the Bible tells us how we become an Israelite. You're not going to be ready for Jesus to come unless you are an Israelite, we read. So how do you become one? That's what we need to look at now. You are all sons. That's children, in other words. You are all sons, children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. When you put on Christ, you become Israel. And you do that through the baptism of faith, he's saying. Baptism into Christ. You put on Christ. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Wow, mighty good news. Everything promised to Abraham you get in Jesus. So we put on Christ through baptism of faith, the Bible says. Now, baptism is actually mentioned. Sorry, having put on Christ, that's how we become true Israelites. Now, baptism is mentioned about 80 times in the Bible. That means this is not a minor subject. That means this is very important when it's mentioned so many times in the New Testament. 
vital. So what's the meaning of baptism? Which we want to have a look at that first and we'll see very clearly what this means. Number one, it means death to sinful living. Freedom from our old destructive lifestyles that we've been living before we come to Jesus. Notice what it says. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he explains, knowing this, that our old man was crucified. Now, that's not your dad. The old man is your old you in here. The old man, our old way of living might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, when a person accepts Jesus by faith and follows through with baptism, that person is no longer a slave to sin. Sin is no longer their master. There's a power over sin. I death to the old life second thing a new life freedom to live a powerful purposeful life through jesus christ paul goes on just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father from the tomb even so we also we people should walk in newness of life we have a new power a new life for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death that's through baptism certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Just as Jesus came up from the dead, we come up to a new life, he's saying. Now, if we died with Christ through baptism, we believe we shall also live with him. Wow. No wonder Paul said these words when he wrote to his friends in Galatia. He sums that all up in this one verse. I have been crucified with Christ. That's through baptism we just read. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the new life in you and me. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, in my, while I'm going about my daily activity, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Put your name right there. Wow, what an amazing thing this is. When a person is baptized by faith into Jesus, they come to a new life of power a dynamic life, a life of tremendous confidence and joy in Jesus. Last meaning of baptism is belonging. We are actually the children of God. Remember what we read? You are all sons or children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we are children of God now through Christ's death, and his resurrection and our faith in that. So when you go to a baptism or when you see a baptism, when you're baptized, you go to a funeral, you go to a resurrection and you go to a new birth. Somebody's old way of living is going. Somebody's coming to a new life of power. Somebody is a new child of God. An amazing uh, idea that Paul has for us here. OK, we've seen the meaning. Now let's look at the method of baptism. You know, there are many uh, ideas that people have as far as uh, the, the, the method of baptism. I've heard of baptism uh, with rose petals. That'd be sweet, wouldn't it? Heard of baptism by salt. I guess that'd preserve you, wouldn't it? Uh, 
Baptism over the telephone. That's the dry cleaning method, I guess. Imagine that. Baptism by sprinkling and baptism by putting people under the water. But the Bible says there's only one form of baptism because it's going to fit the, method, the meaning. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Bible only knows one form of baptism. And we'd find that if we looked at how was Jesus baptized. So how did Jesus baptize? Well, we go to the Jordan River. Mark records it. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I would say that if Jesus found it important to be baptized and he never sinned, I reckon it'd be pretty important for us, wouldn't it? <laughs> if, he, if he was baptized. But he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So often we see John uh, baptizing Jesus on the banks of the river or something. No, no, no. Jesus was in the Jordan River when he was baptized in the Jordan. Number two, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So baptism in baptism, you have to go into water and you have to come out of water, according to the Bible. In the water. Now, let's talk about one more example. This is a, a, a young a preacher guy in the book of Acts. And uh, one day uh, there was a Ethiopian man traveling from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He'd been to some Jewish festivals in Jerusalem and he's in his chariot and he's reading, of all things, the book of Isaiah. Remember the Isaiah scrolls from the Dead Sea? He's reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip is spoken to by God through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit says, see that man over there, Philip? You go over to him and you help that man understand what he's reading. So Philip goes near the chariot where the man is driving along. He must have run up to him. He says, say, sir, do you know what you're reading? He says, how can I know unless someone helps me? So come up in my chariot. And they rode along together. And Philip showed to him that Jesus is the Messiah. He was reading from Isaiah 53 about how Jesus would die way back then in the book of Isaiah. And then when they come to some water after he's talked to him about Jesus and now he understands about it, notice what happens. He commanded the chariot to stand still. That's the Ethiopian man. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. So when you see baptism, two people go into the water. And he baptized him, the one baptizing and the one being baptized. Now, when they came up out of the water, so you see the same pattern occurs again. Biblical baptism occurs in water. Now, the word baptism actually means to dip under. It means to immerse, to plunge under. So if you were going to baptize your car, you couldn't get out the hose and spray it. You'd have to drive it under the water, under the river and come up the other. Probably wouldn't do your car a lot of good, would it? But that would baptize your car because that's what the word means. Baptizo. John, John the Baptist, he was also baptizing in Anon near Salem. Why was he doing this in this place? It tells us because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. When you see baptism, you need a lot of water. If John was sprinkling people with a few drops, a bucket full of water would have done thousands. But he had to be where there was much water, you see. So this is the picture that we have here. Much water is needed in baptism. That's why the Bible uses this term, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him. Now, when you bury something, you put it underground, don't you? And this is the idea here. So people have to go under the water 
That's why the Bible uses that term buried. One Lord, one faith, one form of baptism. Remember hearing of a, a father and a son. They were actually arguing about what was the method of baptism. The father said, no, baptism means you sprinkle people with a few drops of water. And the son said, no, it means you've got to you know, bury them. You've got to put them under the water. And they were arguing for ages. And finally, the father says, come on, boy, we've got some work to do around here today. So let's stop arguing and let's go do some, some work. Well, the father gives him a job to do. He says, oh, by the way, the rooster died last night. I want you to bury him. So away they go. When it's nighttime to come in after all their work, the father is furious. He's mad as a meat axe. And when the boy came in, he said, I thought I told you to bury that rooster. And the boy said, I did. I sprinkled a few grains of dirt on top of him, Dad, because this morning you told me that's what burial means, you sprinkle. <laughs> and the father got the message. If you're going to bury it, you've got to put it right under the ground. You've got to put it right under the water in baptism. Now, the biblical method of baptism fits the meaning, because have a look at how biblical baptism occurs. Here are some people. They go down, death to the old, resurrection to the new. So they're buried and resurrection. That's the symbol of baptism. Go under. Let's go here to Africa now. Here are some, some people. Death to the old way of living. Burial up to a new life. You see, the method and the meaning fit beautifully in biblical baptism. All right. Now, what may surprise us is this, that immersion baptism was practiced for centuries in Christianity. Let me take you to a few places around the Middle East and, and in Europe to illustrate that. Let's begin here at um, uh, Ephesus. This is the old church. It goes back to about the 5th or 6th century AD. It's the church of St. Mary. This is the library of Celsus in Ephesus. And just a few hundred yards up the road is this old church with a baptistry. It's about three, about a metre or so deep. And here is a couple of my friends uh, practising baptism, pretending to baptise. I think you can recognise them, don't you? Okay, some of you. There we go up the road to the Basilica of John, St. John. By the way, why is it called the, the Church of St. Mary? Because remember Jesus, when he was dying, he said, John, please look after mum. So it's the, the traditional belief that when John came here to Turkey, he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. And so the Church of St. Mary. This is the Basilica of St. John. This is where John, the one who wrote Revelation, is believed to be buried in this basilica. But you can see a baptistry here, about a metre deep with steps going down, where people were once baptised by immersion. And by the way, that's where John is believed to be buried, right just there under that slab of stone there. So once used these baptistries. Let's go to Jerash in Jordan. Jerash uh, had some very old churches going way back to the 5th and 6th centuries and so on. And you can see there's got a bit of rubble in this one, but this guy's pretending to baptise me in a baptistry that once was there. The Church of St. John of Laterano, this was the great church in Rome before they built St. Peter's Basilica back in the 1500s. Uh, you'll notice this building here has this baptistry. It's about a metre deep. It's a circular one. It used to be filled up 
with water and just today they use it for sprinkling. I've seen them do sprinkling baptisms right in that place. Let's go just to the Church of St. Paul's outside the walls. A beautiful baptistry here. Again, about a metre deep, once filled with water. Notice across here, baptism in Simus in Christu Jesus, it goes on to say, baptism into Jesus Christ. Once they put people under the water. One more. Let's go to Pisa, the famous leaning tower. You will notice here's the cathedral of Pisa. Here's the great big uh, a circular building here. And then this is where the baptistry is. Up there is the leaning tower. But inside here is this, this octagonal baptistry. It is where people were once put under the water. It was last used about 1100 AD. I want you to notice what Cardinal James Gibbon said. He's a cardinal of the Church of Rome. He said, For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion. That was the way we just seen. But since the 12th century, that's about what, 900 years ago, the practice of baptizing by infusion or sprinkling has prevailed in the Catholic Church and in many others. As this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. Stop and think about that for a minute. Since when do we follow uh, or do something because it's convenient when the Bible tells us to do something else? What a tragedy. You see what happens when, when we change Scripture or we change what the Bible's teaching, we end up with all sorts of problems in actual fact. So... The Cardinal certainly tells us how it happened. Now, how important is baptism? Is it really that important? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Notice what Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus actually connects baptism with salvation right here. So it's pretty important. Jesus actually commanded his disciples to go and baptize. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations and baptize them. Very important. Peter on the day of Pentecost said these words. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will give you the Holy Spirit. But you notice when you're baptized, what for? What did he say back here? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins or the remission of sins. So baptism clearly is important in the Bible. It's not a minor thing. Now, baptism doesn't mean you're perfect. When we're baptized through faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It's not graduation. It's the beginning of the Christian journey. So don't ever think that oh, I have to be perfect to get baptized. No, it's the start of the Christian journey. It's about commitment to Jesus Christ. And it brings a new sense of freedom when done in faith. It brings new spiritual power in our lives when done through faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't magical. If it was, a duck could get wet and that's baptism. No, it has to be done in the right manner. And that is the way Paul talks. Notice what he says. In Jesus, in him you were circumcised. Remember, circumcision is a sign of what? Being a Jewish person, being an Israelite, which you need to be as far as the Bible's concerned in that sense. In him you were circumcised. 
with the circumcision made without hands. We're not talking about, you know, the doctor doing circumcision here, he's saying, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. We're talking about taking away that sin stuff out of our life, saying, I've finished with it. By the circumcision of Christ. So what's the circumcision of Christ? He explains, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through your faith, in the working or the power of God who raised him from the dead. You see, it's not magical. Baptism means I believe that Jesus died for my sin and I turn from my stuff and I say, God, take me and give me a new life. That's what it's about. Now, what are the steps to baptism as we wrap this up tonight? What steps do we have to take? for such an important thing because John in the book of Revelation says this is not minor. We have to be an Israelite. How do you be an Israelite? Baptism of faith. Spelled out clearly here. Repent, which means a genuine sorrow for sin and a turning from it. That's the first thing. Notice what the Bible says. Peter said, we just read it, repent and let every one of you be baptised. We have to say to God, I've been going in the wrong direction. Now, I give you permission to take me in a new direction in life now. Number two, not only must we repent, but we must believe. That means we accept Jesus as Saviour, as Master and Lord of our life. We put our trust in him. We say, Lord, you died for me. I accept that. I throw myself on you. I claim you. You know what faith is? It's, it's like the hand that reaches out for the gift. Faith is like the feet that come to Jesus just as they are. It's the eyes that look to God for help. That's the sort of thing faith is. It's saying, God, help me. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So we have to believe. And lastly, we need to be taught. We need to learn. We need to be instructed in the essentials of biblical faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them, but he mentioned this also, teaching them, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe or obey all things that I've commanded you. Show them what I've told you and teach them to follow me. So that's the three things. The three steps to baptism, repent, Believe and learn, meaning the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, by the way, this is why the Bible doesn't have baptism for babies. Okay, because babies cannot repent. They don't even understand anything. They, of course, can't believe and they can't be taught. They can't learn what it is. So the Bible doesn't teach baptism for infants at young age like that does that mean the children are not important well of course not what the bible does teach is dedication you remember jesus was dedicated just after his birth his mum and dad brought him to the temple and he was dedicated jesus took the kids in his arms and he blessed them and prayed for them that's dedication that's not baptism and uh, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has a high regard for kids. He loves them. But that's not baptism when we talk about dedication. Now, your parents, 
may have dedicated, uh, I should say, baptised you or christened you when you were a kid. That's because they did the best thing that they knew for you, when you in their understanding. And, and so God understands when, when parents do the best they can for their kids, but it's still not, it's still not baptism. And so when you understand that, hey, my mum and dad did the best, but I can see that's not biblical baptism, then we need to get baptised the proper way uh, as a believer, of course. So, should I ever be rebaptized? As with the last question we want to look at, should I ever be rebaptized? Well, yes and no. That's a good middle of the road position, isn't it? Yes and no. First of all, yes, if I haven't been baptized by immersion, I've been sprinkled, I should be baptized by, I must be baptized by immersion because I need to follow Jesus. So, yes, of course. Yes, if I've raised the old sinful life. So, say you once followed Jesus and you turned away from Jesus and you went back into the ways of this world and took back all that stuff that you once did and everybody knew about it and you did it too, then of course you need to be rebaptized. Why? Because the old man needs to be buried. Because this is about the old life being buried. So yes, there's reason for being rebaptized if I've gone away from God, but I'm coming back. Number three, yes, if I've even discovered new significant truth. This is a good reason for rebaptism in the Bible. Let me share it with you. Paul came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were believed? So these are Christian people, by the way. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, is the Holy Spirit a very important teaching in the Bible? You better believe it. <laughs> Uh, this, is, this, is, this is what begins the Christian church after Jesus goes back to heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But we haven't heard of it, they said. He said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Was John's baptism a good baptism? Of course it was. Jesus was baptized by John's baptism and probably some of the other disciples. So then into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, who would come after him? That is on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, when they understood this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So yes, there's a, a place. A significant new truth. Things like the Sabbath, that's a critical truth, isn't it? It's one of the commandments of God and so on. Very important teachings. Yes, no, when I sin, but I stay with Jesus. So just because you make a mistake doesn't mean you should be rebaptized. Otherwise, you'd spend all your time in the baptism. Well, fine, wouldn't you? Because <laughs> we make mistakes. How do we know that? Well, this is what happened when Jesus was here with Peter. You might remember Jesus washed the disciples' feet the night before he died. And when he came to Peter, Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. You're too powerful. You're too good to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you can have no part with me. You will not have eternal life. And then Peter said, well, then wash me all over from head to toe. And Jesus said, no, that, no, 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 Peter. If you've had a bath, you just need your feet washed. The bath is the baptism. If you follow Jesus, every time you sin, you don't have to get baptized again. Now, there's a, a, a practice called feet washing, said Jesus. That is all you need, Peter, not another bath. So here's the question. Who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb? I want to bring us back to this. 
This is a vital question here. This is not a minor issue. Who can stand before the throne of God? The answer that's given is what? The Israelites, first of all. That's all we've that looked at that bit tonight. The Israelites. These are the saved when Jesus returns. What we've discovered tonight is how you become an Israelite. It's through the baptism of faith. That's how we become a true Israelite. I have a good friend. Uh, some of you might know him. I'm sure you've heard of him. Certainly many of you. Mark Finley. We were with Mark working in Melbourne for a few weeks, a few years ago. And uh, a very interesting story that Mark shared with us. He was the first one to go to the former Kremlin after the, United, after the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, he preached a series of meetings like this in Moscow. And uh, coming to those meetings was a mother and her children. But one was not coming because he was dying of cancer. This young man here on your left. They were going night after night to hear the word of God. They had not heard it in Russia because of communism. And they were hungry to know about God. And uh, this young man was getting sicker and sicker. Mark visited this family and the young man said to him, Pastor Mark, I want to be baptized. His mom, of course, and his sister were sharing with him what they'd been hearing and he'd accepted it. I want to be baptized, Pastor Mark. And Mark said to him, listen, you are too sick to be baptized. God understands. The thief on the cross couldn't get baptized. I mean, he didn't have that chance. He would have if he had have had the chance, but he was nailed to a cross and he died there. So God understands in your situation. He said, no, Pastor Mark, I want to follow Jesus in baptism. So Mark didn't know what to do. And then he thought, he asked the wife, the mother, said, do you have a bath in your house? He said, yes, we do. So Mark picked up this boy, sick as anything, still vomiting, terrible situation, dying of cancer, took him to the bathroom and baptised him in his own bathtub. Now, I, I reckon if a young man like that can see the importance of baptism, I, I'm sure we can see the importance of baptism. If it's possible for him, it's, it's, it's possible for us, isn't it? To follow in those steps. You know, for freedom, we must take a, make a stand. There's no middle ground in this war that we're in the middle of. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no middle point. No, no, we're either on one side or on the other. He who's not with me, said Jesus, is against me. Very important that we make a stand. For freedom, God calls us to take a stand in this matter of what John's talking about in Revelation. And I want to give you the opportunity to take that stand tonight. I'm going to ask that the ushers give out a card to every person tonight. You can't make this decision for your husband or your wife. Thank you, Amon. Mm. And uh, I want everybody to get a card and a pen to make sure you can, you can make a decision here tonight. God is speaking to some of you young people. Maybe there are some here tonight have wandered away and God says to you, oh, you need to get rebaptized. You need to turn back. Time is running out. You're going to see tomorrow night, just tomorrow afternoon, just how close we are to the end. Let me tell you, when we look at the subject of the two beasts of Revelation, you are going to see what's taking place in this world right now. But Jesus is coming and this is no time to be sitting on the fence, let me assure you. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future. 
made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church. From 3ABN's album, Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1, that was Take Me to the Water. This is Alvin Martinez with He's Still Living. There've been many years gone by Since my Lord was crucified Have passed 
since God's grace has been made known. Oh, the precious blood that fell just to redeem my soul from hell. There's your king, the mob did say, as he bled and died that day. Then they laid him in the tomb, lying there in that dark gloom. You could see his side and hands that were pierced by sinful man. The old crown of thorns that was on his brow, but praise his name. Kids with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first-hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too. G'day boys and girls, lovely to be with you. Uncle Gordon here again today. Patrick was a man I had gotten to know a little bit simply because his younger brother used to come along to some exercise programs that I was running for young men. Patrick wanted to know a little bit more about what I stood for, who I was. You see, Patrick grew up on the island of Malaita. His father was a devil priest. A devil priest on that island was one who served bad angels. In the very first place, God made all angels good, but a whole lot of them rebelled. The Bible tells us that one third of all the angels rejected God's leadership and they are out to try and and make trouble for people. And all these people on that little island, 
they were part of that family of, of bad angels and he used to offer pigs as sacrifice on a regular basis. This is the dad who was a devil priest and he used to have all sorts of weird and terrible things take place in their lives. Patrick wanted to know what I stood for. So I began to share with him from the Bible about God, how he much he loved and how much he cared and about the angels and the angels that, that his father served. And during that time of sharing the Bible, Patrick made a decision. He said, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow a God like that. I haven't heard about that kind of thing before. He was only just on his, on his road to, to learning more and more about God when he went back to visit his father. Just for holiday time when his older children were at school and he took his little daughter Maureen who was just four years old with him. While he was there visiting his dad, he was going to stay for two weeks, but his dad kept saying to him, Patrick, the evil angels that, that I'm part of, they want you to take my place. They want you to be the next devil priest. And Patrick said, oh, no, Dad, that's not going to happen. I don't want to be part of that. I'm going to be a Christian now. And the dad kept saying, no, 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 Patrick, you can't be a Christian. You can't. You're going to be the next one to replace me as the next devil priest. And after a week of being pushed and pushed and pushed, Patrick said, Dad, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going back home to Honiara, where I live now. And his father, as he took off in the canoe and started the outboard motor and off he went, his father yelled out, but the evil angels won't be happy. They'll be after you. They'll try and hurt you. Patrick, it'll be bad for you if you don't say yes. Anyway, he was soon out of earshot of Dad, and, but he noticed something terrible was happening. He noticed sharks starting to come in from all around the ocean and they were coming and banging against his canoe and they were trying to capsize him to eat him. They were trying to bang the canoe to turn him over and for his first time he began to talk to God himself. He said, God, God of Pastor Smith, I haven't talked to you before but, but please look after me. I want to be part of your family, part of those who love you because I do love you now so please keep me safe. All the way back through the 70 kilometres of open sea, Patrick had these sharks banging against the canoe, but there was a stronger hand keeping him safe. But that night, something terrible began to happen at home. He woke up with Maureen screaming, screaming, and he came and had a look and he could see finger marks around her neck. There were evil angels trying to kill her and they were squashing her neck and stopping her breathing and then before she, she gasped her last breath, they'd let go again. They were just tormenting her. And after a little while, it stopped. The second night, the same thing happened. Then the third night, the same thing happened and he had this feeling that they were going to kill her tonight. This was it. And so he came rushing down to my place and called me and said, can you come home with me quickly, quickly? I think my little daughter Maureen is going to die tonight. And so I rushed with him back to his home. And as I walked into his little thatch home, I could feel an evil presence there. I could feel something terrible going on. And as I looked down at little Maureen, I could already see little fingers pushing against her neck, squashing her neck. I couldn't see the fingers, but I could see the finger marks on her neck. I couldn't see the angels, but I could feel they were there. I could even smell they were there. It was frightening. Not a happy place to be in. Already a lot of the family had gathered around because they all sensed that tonight Maureen was going to die. And so I shared for a little while before I prayed with them about God who is the supreme being. Yes, there are good angels and there are bad. 
But God's good angels have much more power because they have the power from God. And they can push away the other angels. God himself, if he came, he could make her safe. And then I prayed. And I asked God to to please send his angels there to that little home, to push the other angels away, to protect Maureen, and to keep her safe and let her grow up knowing and loving God like her dad was learning to do. And as I finished praying, all of a sudden it was like a hurricane hit that room. That little house began to shake as I could hear like a huge wind rushing around the house, probably faster than any wind I've ever been in, even though I've been in many cyclones. And the wind was around and around and around the house. And I thought, what's going on? What's going on? And everybody in the room was shaking with fear, wondering what was going to happen. Were they all going to die? And all of a sudden there was peace. Everything began to go quiet and calm. Even the cicadas in the trees and the insects that were there in the tropics, in the bush all around, all came to life again. They'd all been quiet while this battle was going on. And I sensed that day that that the bad angels didn't want to go. And they were being chased around and around the house by the good angels. And at last, they were flicked away. And God was in control in Maureen's life. Each night I came back for a number of nights just on sunset because they often got nervous at sunset when the darkness came in and just again invited God to be around their home, God to be present so that they had nothing to fear because God had set up his camp in their place. They had no more troubles and I had the joy of seeing Patrick totally give his life and his family's life to God and to be baptised as a symbol of that choice for God from heathenism to Christianity. What a wonderful, exciting miracle God did in his life and in little Maureen's life. Boys and girls, God loves you and he wants to be part of your life and no matter what terrible things are going on around, God can intervene. God can give you safety, protection and care if you're willing to put your trust in him and to choose God to be part of your life. May you make that choice today for him. God bless, boys and girls. You've been listening to Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.